Hello, this is Patrick, and it's time for Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com and sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, your source of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. Show number five, an interview with an herbalist. Today, Sue and Candace talk with Elise Collier, known in the herbal world as Dandy. She's an herbalist in the Eugene, Oregon area who runs Dandy's Pantry, a micro-herbal practice offering locally sourced seasonal herbals for the community, including Occupy Medical. Later in the news, Sue and Candace discuss the anti-diabetic potential of nettles and walnut. We end the show with a common question, what does it mean to key a plant out? Now, here are your hosts from thepracticalherbalist.com, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Radio. Today we're talking with Elise, Dandy, right? That's how you're known, isn't it, Dandy? <laughs> it is. Dandy, Herbal Dandy. <laughs> welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of how you got started in herbalism. Well, uh, I've always been a plant person. Plants have always been better friends to me than people in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until college that I, I got into um, ethnobotany, people and plants, how, how that relationship works, and studied ecology. Um, and then after college, continued that uh, interest just on my own, kind of reading books and practicing a little here and there, doing workshops when they came up, um, and then did formal training when I moved to Eugene about three years ago um, with the Academy of Scottish Herbalism and studied Celtic herbalism and have been practicing since then. You came from Minnesota, right? To the Midwestern area. Right. That's more or less where I was born and raised. I moved around a lot. Um, <laughs> After that, you lived in Texas, right? Yep. So you've had a taste of Midwestern herbs, Northern mis- Midwest mm-hmm. herbs, and you've had a taste of Southern herbs, and now south. you're here in the Pacific Northwest. That's right. How would you say those three are differing? Like, are you finding a lot of the same stuff mm-hmm. here that you find in the other regions? That's a good question. Um, well, part of the Celtic herbalism is... is um, you know, the philosophy of harvesting weedy things, things that come up on their own that, that like to grow in uh, heavily disturbed areas and stuff that came over from, you know, my ancestors' land, which is the British Isles, what's now known as the British Isles. So Minnesota and Oregon are pretty similar. They're at the same kind of latitude, kind of similar climates. Obviously, Minnesota has pretty harsh winters <laughs> yeah. yes and honestly harsh summers comparatively yes yep <laughs> true but a lot of those kind of hardy species are are the same so it's quite similar texas is a different story it's it's really dry and much hotter <laughs> so <laughs> the flora is quite different down there you get much more of the kind of scrubland type plants but so um, the regional local stuff, the weedy plants, that's what you're using primarily in your current practice, right? That's that's correct. That's primarily what I use. I, I prefer to use plants that are coming up everywhere and just asking to be harvested. You know, I don't... Every once in a while, I, I do go out to wilderness areas and, and harvest from a stand of, of native plants, but for the most part, I like to, to see what's coming up in my backyard, and I believe that the plants know more than I do sometimes what medicine is best and so I 
I try to pick the stuff that's coming up in my yard anyways and trust the plants on, on that, that they're giving me the best medicine I can get. Nice. Where nice. do you do the majority of your lichen and mushroom harvesting? Yeah, so the lichen and the mushroom harvesting are... That, that's more commonly done in the in the wilderness than in my backyard because I, I can't grow lichen in the valley. <laughs> my They like to uh, be in the clean air of, of the forest. So I will find lichen uh, when I'm doing just walking through the woods, uh, picking it off the ground after a recent storm, never harvesting it you know while it's growing on the tree, but recently downed. And at a good time of year, uh, the fall is, is a good time of year when the rains have kind of freshened it up and before it's had time to start like decomposing on the ground all winter long. So so going on walks in the woods when I'm mushroom hunting this time of year is actually really great. So I'm looking forward to the rains so I can go and replenish my, my stock. I have to admit, I'm looking forward to the rains too. I know. <laughs> and I imagine Occupy Medical is looking forward to the rains. Dandy does an awful lot of good herbalism for you guys, doesn't she, Sue? She does. She donates a lot of stuff tinctures to us and some raw herbs and we're very grateful to have her presence in the Occupy Medical Clinic at the back. We have our treatment area and Dandy's in there trooping away offering people good help for the conditions that they come in for or we see her outside sitting on a bench just talking with people you know on the level that they feel most comfortable with. So we're grateful for having you there. Uh, it's great to great to have the opportunity to get some clinical experience and and have a place to uh, to see my my community to to help people out. So yeah, you like to focus on the one on one relationship, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think those interpersonal dynamics are um, and and strong interpersonal bonds are what you know, build a stronger community in the end. And so I'm a big advocate of that. And helping people just feel listened to is the best therapy, really. So a lot of times, you know, the herbalism is sort of a facade almost for just a, a therapeutic conversation. But but certainly plant medicine um, can can supplement when people are having real physical ailments and um, or spiritual ailments. So you've studied a lot of how plants affect people and help people through your degree, right? You've got a master's in eth- uh, bio- biological anthropology. You got it. So got it. That's <laughs> a lot of syllables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. That's correct. I just I just completed my master's degree um, this spring and studied fermentation systems actually. So in uh, the the population I was working with in the Ecuadorian Amazon makes a ferment from cassava tubers, and they make essentially a mashed potato beer is kind of what mm-hmm. it is. And um, the process is by mashing this root up, and then they spit into it, <laughs> not Yum. only putting their <laughs> microbes in there, but also the amylase and the saliva that helps kickstart the, the breaking down the starches into sugars. And so, yeah, that, that was another a really intimate relationship between plants and people. They drank this beer, you know, all day long. It was what they had. The, their water was not clean, and so this was like the cleanest beverage they could get to making this ferment. So that that was a really rewarding uh, project. I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do that as well. Nice. That's almost a little bit like the our European ancestors, actually, back in the Middle Ages, because they did a lot more drinking of beers and really meads back then than they did drinking water, right? That's right. I mean, it's only a modern uh, privilege to have clean water. There's, there's 
a lot of parasites and other diseases through in, in water. So uh, ferment drinking ferments is actually a, a safe way to get hydration um, in you know low alcohol ferments. <laughs> but, yeah, I was gonna say how how high is the alcohol level in that cassava beer? <laughs> yeah, it's really low. It's like three percent. But it's interesting because it's also it also functions as a carrier. Um, and I do this in some of my own fermentation at home. You know, in sauerkrauts the. But one woman in particular that I worked with in, in Ecuador added ginger to her um, cassava beer. And that was, nice. yeah, so that when she was having stomach problems, um, she had a little extra medicine in her ferment. So it's nice. kind of the idea of food as medicine, you know. Does ginger grow there or is she getting it imported? She did. They did have ginger growing there, yeah, because it was a tropical environment. Yeah. So she had she had a little ginger patch in her backyard. Yeah, it's nice yeah. and damp. The soil's damp there. That's perfect. Yeah. Damp, warm beautiful. all the time. Mm-hmm. Perfect for ginger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kinds of things do you add to your ferments at home? You said you do sauerkrauts and yes. similar? Yeah, yeah. So it's my kitchen is always full of strange fermenting things. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I've done most commonly is, uh, yeah, sour, making sauerkraut and then adding herbs to, to the sauerkraut. So um, the sauerkraut is a carrier for a lot of probiotic um, bacteria, a lot of that lactobacillus, which lines our intestinal tract and... Um, is an important immune modulator and also helps us digest our food better. So sauerkraut I see as not only adding flavor to something but being a really good probiotic. And additionally, you can add different flavors to that to make it, you know, taste taste different, add variety while you're adding your herbal medicine. So one popular one is uh, I add carminatives um, like turmeric and um, ginger and fennel to uh, sort of a, a stomach upset sauerkraut. It's supposed to be good for your stomach. So not only are you eating your probiotics, but you're also getting those soothing herbs in there to kind of calm things down if you're having a bellyache. So. Are there any other ones that you have as particular favorites? Like what are you doing at this time of year coming into the fall here? Yeah, coming into the fall. Well, there's a lot of... <laughs> Right now, it's a lot of harvesting of uh, fruits, so <laughs> it's kind of fruit season. I'm drying a lot of stuff right now, but also roots. It's, it's about time to harvest roots, so I, I dug up some Ella Campaign recently, which is great for the lungs. So as we go into the winter season, we'll have uh, have some good lung tonic for uh, for our clients at Occupy Medical that might have trouble with their lungs adjusting to the moisture again in the air. So, so do you try adding the elecampane to the sauerkraut then? I haven't done that Imagine yet. That would be no, I haven't done that yet. It's very bitter. It is, yeah. I don't know if the sour would overcome no. the bitter. See, another one, another one I really like to do is making honeys, infused honeys, mm-hmm. which you can then, you know, make into syrup from there if you'd like. But So I've done, like, elderberry syrup, classic, but then... Also, the Ella Campaign is great in a syrup. Um, I think I made one last year with some uh, ginger. It's probably a ginger syrup in there. You're using heat to extract? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I actually juice the Ella Campaign root. So I'm a big fan of juicing the roots because um, you get a lot of a lot of that good stuff out of there. Rather than just sticking it in whole? Rather than just tincturing it, yeah. Like, tincture it and then pour the tincture through a juicer to juice out the the really good stuff. Okay. And so that will do a better job of straining and squeezing right. out the and it, over. Yeah. And you do get you do get some sediment 
you know, in the juice extract. So it depends on how you're, what kind of audience you're going for. If you want someone who really wants a clean tincture, you don't want to go that way. But I think the inulins and, and all the, the cloudy stuff in the uh, juice starches roots, the starches that. are um, really great. And you get more of the immune modulating polysaccharides and that sort of thing when you do the juicing. So yeah, but from a practical standpoint, we kind of like that, don't we, Sue? Yes, <laughs> you know? we, we like the gooey bits. Mm-hmm. Cloudy. What about elderberry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, elderberry. I need to go harvest some. <laughs> it's time. Yes. Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna do some juicing of elderberry this year as well. I haven't gotten out there yet. Um, hopefully this weekend I'll be able to. But yeah, elderberry is great to have through the winter. We're so lucky in the Northwest to have it in abundance. And that one's also one that you can harvest really ethically because they the blue elderberry blue elderberry likes clear cuts a lot. So going out to clear cuts is kind of where I choose to, to harvest from. Yeah, I think I've seen the biggest plants come from clear cut areas. It's just mm-hmm. kind of competing with the alder mm-hmm. in the area. Mm-hmm. It's the first strike to recover from a clear cut. Right. Do you have any particular rituals that you do when you're harvesting, like oh, elderberry? Interesting question. That's one of those ones that's, I know, a big mm-hmm. Celtic mm-hmm. herb. Right. Well, I definitely like to acknowledge the the plant's gift and acknowledge the pain that I might cause the plant um, in taking that gift. And so I try to leave something in exchange, leave a material object and also, or or some kind of um, little bit of homegrown tobacco or something, some kind of gift to the plant. And sometimes, you know, I'm a microbiologist as well, so I... Sometimes if it's if I'm digging, I'll spit into the hole and leave a little bit of my microbes there, or nice. something like that, just as a kind of complete the circuit and and give back in some way. Nice. So when you were studying the peoples in Ecuador mm-hmm. and working with them, did they have similar rituals? Were their rituals different? Yeah, I, you know, I, I hesitate to to talk too much about their rituals because a lot of it is a cultural difference and and things that I might see as ritualistic to them are just their lifestyle and their culture and what they do on a day-to-day basis. You know, ritual is a tricky thing because I think I think ritual is a lot about just sort of acknowledging the a greater power and sort of putting yourself in a headspace, a calm to be to be at peace when you're harvesting and when you're creating something. So ritual is different for everybody. And, and, you know, for me, I follow a pagan or Wiccan tradition. And so a lot of my rituals come trickle down from that sort of uh, practice. But people have all sorts of different ways of performing rituals, you know, even on the daily basis, just the way you clean your dishes could be ritual, you know? Just, oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> I guess I was thinking Depends. more about if any, if there were any specific practices they have from when they were harvesting mm-hmm. from the wild for medicine and whether you've used any of those yourself or similar or whether the Celtic traditions and other areas that you've gotten your rituals from mm-hmm. happen to be the same. Because I know worldwide when you look at things like mythology and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you often find similar archetypes showing up. Right. Yeah, so the Shuar have, a lot of their stories are about um, kind of like a transmutation between plants and people. They have these stories of Shuar women that are, you know, priestesses or, you know, these magical Shuar kind of characters that 
you know, on some kind of journey and, and well, specifically one that comes to mind is these two sisters were trying to escape from a man who wanted to marry them and they didn't want to marry him. And so it was a story of feminine empowerment where they um, ran through the woods trying to get away from him and they transformed themselves into plants, into these important plants that the Shua people use today. And so they have this story attached to a plant of, of a you know empowered female who's using her her superpowers so mm-hmm. to speak to transform into a plant in order to escape this man, and so there's like these stories and anthropomorphizing a, a plant to give it a, an extra sacred meaning, um, and those two plants in particular were ones that women used that they were um, you know associated with the sort of feminine sphere. So I thought that was that was kind of neat that they actually had human spirits that were in these plants. Right. Yeah, that really talks about the bridging the connection between plant and human. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting difference between some of the Greek myths we hear about women in the similar situation running away from a gentleman who is not acting gentlemanly, and then the gods turn her into some plant right. as opposed right. to the women themselves deciding, I will connect with the earth and I'm, I'm done with this other lifestyle. Right, that's yeah. an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those gods making the choice for us, for women, mm-hmm. for the woman in question, very European. Yeah, you know, decide deeming someone on high, deeming who is worthy of transformation and who is not. Right, mm-hmm. you know. right. Or just having the power to do it, mm-hmm. to be able to make that choice, and, and make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, right. Right. Yeah, if I was the god up there making that choice, I would say, oh, listen, son, <laughs> you're the one that's making the change. You're having the trouble. But I wasn't there. It's not for me to judge. Yes. <laughs> so speaking of women's empowerment, one of the things that you have focused on is being a doula, right? That's right. Yes, I've trained as a, a birth doula. Mm-hmm. Nice. And how does your herbalism factor into that? Because doula is very much about... A lot of, I don't want to say hand-holding, because, I mean, hand-holding is what I needed when mm-hmm. I was giving birth way back when. Mm-hmm. But, and it is some of that, but it's also about empowering the mother to be and helping her on that journey. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see my role as doula as sort of creating this kind of bubble of protection, this bubble of support around her. as she's Because women in, in labor are, you know, they're going to a different spiritual place when you're, you know, really, really deep in labor. Like, the point is that you want to trance out, so to speak. You want to <laughs> forget about your environment. And when you're in a hospital setting, you have all these distractions. Or even in a home setting, that can happen. You know, all these people coming in and wanting to check in and see how you're doing. And so the role of the doula is, you know, providing some comfort measures and providing informational support about what the physiology is what's going on as your body is kind of taking over and you're kind of losing control and so it's the role of the doula is to sort of facilitate that transition and create that bubble and allow so that woman feels safe and vulnerable just letting go and allowing her body to do what it needs to do mother's advocate right Mm -hmm. exactly yeah Yeah, Sue, you studied Mm-hmm. midwifery for a while there yep. right yeah mm-hmm. and it's a similar kind of role just with midwifery it's a lot more hands-on and um, the advocacy there is there but uh, you can be a little more gooey <laughs> at the end than a doula yep. <laughs> a little wetter 
don't, the doula and the midwife work closely together, right? Uh, some, hopefully. It, it, <laughs> I don't best. know what it's like now, but it, for um, a, a while ago, it was the doula that was allowed to come into the hospital and the midwife had to stop at the door. There were some exceptions to that rule, but mm-hmm. the midwife was considered a threat to the OBGYN. And I know that's different now. Um, some midwives come into hospitals here in Eugene, or Springfield, I should say, and they come in and enact in, in a doula-like way mm-hmm. if you need to take your patient to the hospital. Sure. Mm-hmm. But in the... It depends on births. I think some women, for instance, I had a midwife on my last child, and, and she herself said, you could do this yourself. You've done it too many times. You don't need my help. But <laughs> I really like to have a hand squisher. No, not hand holder, hand squisher. And so um, I needed some freedom for my husband to use his hands afterwards because they would be uh, misshapen and claw-like. And, and it was fabulous. I mean, she was a neighbor of mine too. So my midwife just came in and stood there and patted me on the back and all the excitement happened. Mm-hmm. But for that situation, a doula would have been perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times when I think a doula, in my estimation, is the the external confidence that women are not allowed in their mental processes to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. But if someone else is there, then you can have that external confidence booster. You mm-hmm. can do it. You're already doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're midstream. You're gonna be fine. And it's also nice to have someone else on the outside remind the people that really want to help and sometimes want to control. A situation that's not theirs to control mm-hmm. to back off and get some peace and maybe they need to go get some water or give them some artificial chore and right. I think that's what doulas still do right yeah and I think you know there's a lot of lessons there like the level of part of being a healer is knowing the level of intervention necessary you know someone who early on in labor you just need a little bit of support that soothing rub in the back and and other times, you know, later on, there's that moment of what they call the take charge routine where you really need to step in and, and look them in the eyes and, and be a little more fierce and strong with them and just be like, you know, you got this and like, you're going to be all right. Just like, I need you to do this right now, you know, whatever it might be, like just mm-hmm. holding them strong, holding them tight, coming in close and mm-hmm. um, and being Breathe a little bit your uterus. Yeah. Now. And being yeah. a little bit more forceful with your guidance. And I see the same thing in herbalism like a lot of times for healing some people just need someone to talk to and other times they need some flower essences to work on the spiritual healing part you know as well as the therapy um so having some kind of um mantra to focus on when they take a little bit of of flower essences in i encourage people to to be calm and go into that sort of meditative space in, in herbal healing too, as well as when they're in labor. Um, it's a very similar process. As you're trying to heal yourself, it's it can be a rite of passage in a way and a, and a transition into a new you, a new healthy you. So, so as a healer, I see myself as the you know, facilitating that transition. And there are times when people just need a little bit extra and they can dose themselves, it's fine. And other times people need a more, like, regimented routine and, and someone to, like, hold them accountable to that and really hold their hand through it. So I think part of being a good healer is knowing the level of intervention and not 
just throwing all of the really, really harsh herbs at somebody all at once. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I like the fact that you, you said that and that you're talking about also using flower essences because it's, there's the, the strong herbs like the cohoshes and those mm-hmm. ones that are really, you know, more intense. And then you get the tonic stuff like the nettle and oats and the dandelion root, which are more tonic. And, mm-hmm. and then you move into even lighter things like the flower essences and the homeopathics and Right. It sounds like you kind of use the range. Right. Yeah. I think it's just identifying like what a real problem is, where where the root of a disease or illness is coming from. You know, is it from a spiritual plane or is it from a body like nutritional standpoint? And you know, usually it's a combination of both. But right. I see these mushrooms as being stronger medicine. I mean, that to me is the heavy guns. Do you view it that way, or are there you know, some that are lighter? In some ways, usually with mushrooms, you actually do need a higher amount of them because they're not as potent per gram or in the in the end extraction. Um, it's just different. It's hard to say how how much they're more potent. Um, I guess in terms of they're they're certainly very powerful because of how they can assist the whole immune system. It's kind of like an overhaul drug where it can help everything just kind of shift a little bit. You know, they're they're big immune modulators. That's the big thing that mushrooms do. They're not necessarily really strong antibiotics, say. They're not going to have the same strength of flavor as, like, organ grape, where it just makes your mouth kind of like, ooh, that hurts, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a different kind of strong. It's a, it's a powerful strong that, you know, helping to sort of shift your whole immune response, or in some cases, helping you recover from cancer. So... Certainly really powerful, but in terms of their actual taste and the amount that you take in, it's actually a, a lot of times it's you want more of, of a, a mushroom medicine than you would of an herbal medicine. In both the powdered and the tincture form? Yeah, it's generally a dose is three to six grams, on, um, and even more for, for cancer. For my reishi tinctures, you know, I recommend people taking uh, a teaspoon of that, you know, up to... You know, three times daily, even if they're really trying to, if they're real, if reishi is really their focus, you know. Whereas I might say just a dropper full of a of a tincture medicine. Do you tend on your other herbals, the non mushrooms? Do you tend to go for more of the Matthew Wood homeopathic style dosing, where it's you know a few drops, maybe up to twenty maximum, but mostly like three to ten drops, three times a day, or are you more of the take a dropper full or two? level yeah for the for the homeopathic flower essence stuff i'm on board with the you know low light dosage um because i think that's that's the point is a really light sort of suggestion to your body or your ethereal body whereas yeah with the stuff we use at the clinic usually it's a dropper full two to three times a day um that's kind of a standard dosage but we don't at the clinic we don't really use a lot of drop dosage plants Hey, at the clinic, you're seeing people for the most part, aren't you, with some pretty yeah. aggressive, uh, pretty troubles or diseases or just challenges that are pretty severe. Right, but at, at the same time, we don't, I mean, I'm personally like not, I don't feel comfortable giving out drop dosage plants. Um, I require, A, I require more education and training before I'd be comfortable with that, and I don't always... I want to really trust somebody before I tell them to take something that strong, right. you know, and 
And a lot of times we're seeing 40 people a day at the clinic and you don't, you want to have a really extensive conversation and really build trust with somebody before you give them something that's really strong. And we are urgent care. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. When I learned herbalism, when I began a long time ago, the herbalist that I started with was uh, one of Matthew Wood's students. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't matter what the herb was. She might tell me to take a combination of nettle oat straw and skull cap, let's say. She'd put that in a tincture bottle and she'd say, three drops on the tongue three mm-hmm. times a day mm-hmm. and it worked mm-hmm. so you right. know it, these are tonic level herbs but it just took a Take tiny amount right. Right. whereas you know with the perimenopausal symptoms I'm finding you know four dropperfuls of valerian might actually help me get to sleep mm-hmm. a like couple a right drops from the no, exactly and that's where everyone's bodies are different you know and like that's you can you got to experiment with your with your own needs and your own body and find out what's the right dosage for you because right. you know I, I think a dropper full is like a good place to start but if it's too strong and the reaction's like you know you're swinging way the other direction then obviously yeah take it down but it's hard to know without seeing people on a regular basis and getting a lot of feedback to know like what's the exact amount that this person needs, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah, which would be where the one-on-one relationship makes a big deal for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we're wrapping it up today, and I wanted to make sure that we we, um, had a chance to remind people or tell people that if they want to get a hold of you and and get some of your herbals, they can contact you at it's dandy's pantry at gmail.com, correctly? No, or no, herbal dandy. Herbal dandy. Thank you. Yes. Herbal, herbal dandy at gmail.com. And you do have a website coming up eventually. Eventually, yes. yes slowly working <laughs> yes. on it. Yes, so, a winter project. Thank you very much. in the news. The Herb Research Foundation published an article entitled Anti-Diabetic Potential of Nettles and Walnut Leaves on August 26, 2014. Sue and Candace discussed the ramifications of the study's results for Americans with diabetes and pre-diabetes conditions. We looked at the original study published by the Iranian Journal of Basic Medicinal Science as well as the National Diabetes Statistics Report by the Center for Disease Control. Now, here's Candace and Sue. This last August, the Herb Research Foundation published an article entitled Anti-Diabetic Potential of Nettles and Walnut Leaves. Today, Sue, I'd like to talk a little bit with you about what they're talking about there. Okay. The the article was originally published by the Iranian Journal of Basic Medical Sciences, and it was a very complex study. They're looking at traditional ways of treating diabetes in the Iranian culture and what people generally used was a really strong, in the article they call it an aqueous extract, which is a very fancy term for a extremely strong tea. And I can imagine um, knowing how people do teas in that area, for instance, ter- 
Turkish, Turkish coffee. coffee. Is very, very it's strong. Almost mud, it's so strong. Yeah, yes. so their teas also Absolutely. tend to be extremely strong as well. And the way that they would use it is by combining nettle leaf and then the leaf of the local walnut tree. And it's we have um, the Juglans nigra and a couple of the the, the, the English, English walnut, walnut is really common. And yeah. this one is a Juglans regia, which is not one I'm particularly familiar with, but I am very familiar with how important both nettle is for people with diabetes because it's so nutritional and it's a really great way to get uh, the um, the pancreas moving and according to this study it appears that the combination of the nettle and that walnut it works on the amylase um, which um, controls your glucose chirohydrates to glucose and the study is very, very extensive, and I strongly encourage other people to take a look at it. But this is, in our in America, we have so much diabetes, and it's increasing all the time. Yeah. And it's becoming a real concern. You're, you're seeing thousands of people now who are very progressed in their diabetes, and we're getting more and more people We're diagnosed. seeing people getting younger and younger, too. Like, even teenagers and 20-somethings getting adult-onset diabetes. Right, yeah, the, the type 2. scary. It is, it is very unnerving, and just the way that it's affecting so many other areas of their life, I can't imagine what it's like to have to walk around with needles in your backpack, and how do you travel right. with that? I'm not sure, but they said that now we've approximately got 2.9 million Americans walking around treating themselves with insulin and 3.1 million Americans walking around treating themselves with both insulin and the oral medication and to have some other option out there perhaps when it's in the pre-diabetic condition that's a real yeah I was thinking the nettle and walnut leaves would be really realistic for someone who's in the pre-diabetic condition to help back it off and yeah. The back. Yeah, this is a study to watch, and I look forward to the subsequent studies and seeing how that can help our population. Thank you very much. Now it's time for Herbalism 101. Sue and Candace discuss the common question Did you key that plant out? and identification keys for mushrooms and other herbs and how they're used by herbalists. Here's what they had to say. I have come across people asking me questions like, did you key that out with regard to various herbs and mushrooms? Mm -hmm. What do they mean? Well, that's a really awesome question. When you are trying to key something out, you're trying to identify either a plant or a mushroom or an animal or you know, in the scientific field it can go to diseases or soil types. But there is something called an identification key. You see it in a lot of these technical books. And it will put you through a step-by-step process of figuring out how to properly identify something. For mushrooms, for example, to have you take a spore sample, see what color the spores are, the, the ridges on the mushroom itself, or the type of stalk. And sometimes it'll even mention places that it's growing or the season that it's growing. And that's part of the identification key. So if you're keying something out, you're trying to figure out properly what type of plant it is they're questioning if you really know what identity it is that does make sense especially when we're talking about mushrooming yes it's very important to use your key yeah there's a lot yeah. of those mushrooms can look a lot alike yeah 
Well, thank you for dispelling that for me. Hoping (laughs) we understand that. (laughs) If you want the dirt on herbs, herbalism, or anything else related, you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. We will do our best to answer your questions on a future episode of Real Herbalism Radio. Well, that's it for this episode of Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Susie Lupe. If you'd like more information and recipes from today's show or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. If you're feeling a little social, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com, The Practical Herbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at Amazon.com. You can use the search terms Practical Herbalist. The show has been sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at MountainRoseHerbs.com. If you'd like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us through our website at RealHerbalismRadio.com slash contact. Until next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and the Practical Herbalist.com.